Hi, Jens here. Are you interested in innovation? This might be something for you too. Every Friday, I share the latest innovation articles, ideas, videos, books, podcasts, and more that I discovered during the week in my newsletter, Connect the Dots. If you subscribe, you will receive an email into your inbox every Friday. You can't find the newsletter anywhere else, so you have to subscribe if you want to receive it. Head over to jensheitland.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and sign up. But now, let's get started with the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Jens Heitland Show where I connect the dots of innovation and entrepreneurship. My name is Jens Heitland and welcome to the show. Good morning, Bill. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good morning, Jens. Well, all things considered, pretty good. Pretty good. Thank you. Great to have you. Sun is shining, which is a rarity these days. I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> I hear it's raining in Germany. So we, we, we switched the weather to, to London. <laughs> cool. So before we go into a lot of innovation topics, what urban innovation is and how you see the world as entrepreneur, let us a little bit know who are you? What is your story? Tell us. Well, I don't want to consume the entire call because every time I, <laughs> I try and update my resume, I realize what a Forrest Gump-like story my career has been. But it is eventually relevant to what the essence of this call is about what you're doing with entrepreneurship and what I'm trying to do around innovation. Because if I look back on my path to how I got here, it all seems to make some crazy sense. And you can hear by my accent, I'm an American, but I've, I've lived here in Europe for 30 years. I was raised in California, born in New York, had a kind of typical American upbringing until I was a young teenager when I moved from sunny California to Montreal. And that's relevant only in that, and this is this will date me, but uh, for those who know, certainly not you, Montreal hosted the Expo, which was one of the great world expos in the late 60s. So as a young kid, I was exposed to a fantastic city. Montreal is, if you've never been there, a great place. Sure. And I was exposed to this showcase of architecture and innovation. And I would go in, I, I had a season's pass. I probably went 50 times to see this expo. And that's what inspired me looking back on it as a, I don't know, 13 year old or something that I wanted to be an architect. And that uh, living in the, the suburbs of California was not how I saw my future. I loved cities. So that also turned me on to what cities were. So moved back to California, went to architecture school in Los Angeles, which was a city, again, if you know it, the antithesis of Montreal, mm -hmm. a sprawling, great city. I love L.A., but it also gave me a perspective, as did architecture school, on all things related to urbanity, design, et cetera. Bad news is I graduated at a time when, you know, the current crisis, recession, et cetera, it was my first taste of what a downturn looks like. There were no jobs for architects. So I ended up going to work for IBM, of all things as a real estate guy. So I was the client. And as a young corporate real estate guy, it gave me two things. One, an insight, IBM, into the technology world. And two, an insight into the client perspective. And I realized very quickly, it was much more fun to be the client. And IBM at those days 
was a Medici client. And as, again, uh, 20-something, I got to work, and some of these names won't mean much to you, but maybe others listening, I am Pei, Philip Johnson, some of the people I studied in school, the, the great, great, great architects of the 20th century uh, were working for IBM. So I had a chance to fly around. I moved to Paris. So again, as a kid, IBM sent me to be the liaison for the European business to the US for all things related to real estate. And I got to travel around Europe on IBM's nickel and see lots of really interesting projects and cities and decided I loved Europe. So I moved back to the States three or four years, worked for Cushman and Wakefield, did a bunch of different things. I still with IBM before I went to Cushman. So you can already see a fairly checkered path left Cushman to join Disney of all things. And the only qualification for that was I spoke French because I'd lived in Montreal and I was kind of a corporate guy. I was not your classic real estate guy. They were looking for somebody that could deal with all the corporate stuff that happens. And that was for the project in Paris, Euro Disney. So it was my ticket back to Europe. I came back and this was the early 90s. Again, if you know anything about the early Euro Disney story, it was uh, a near disaster. I mean, it opened with great fanfare and almost immediately struggled to survive. But the real play, which most people who know it as a theme park don't understand, is there was 2,000 plus hectares of land. It was essentially to develop an Orlando from scratch around the nucleus of the theme park. So all the infrastructure and everything was there to build a city of eventually up to 100,000 people with a university, with a town center and all that stuff. So incredible opportunity to be part of shaping an entire community. The trouble was there was no market. It was the early 90s, Disney was struggling, but it gave me again an opportunity to work with great architects. Disney was also a Medici client. It gave me a chance to work with government. This was a major partnership with the French government. It was one of the satellite new cities of Paris. Reason for telling you all that is it sort of shifted me to being a wannabe urbanist. I really began to focus instead of buildings, but the overall aggregate of what creates great community, what creates great cities. Unfortunately, you know, the early 90s were not a happy time. We couldn't give away the land. We couldn't get much development done. The only thing we did do was a retail project. Interestingly, with value retail, for those who know the value retail story, we did a, a joint venture uh, mixed traditional shopping center with an outlet center, which was the nucleus of the town center. Mm-hmm. Left Disney in the middle of the 90s, set up my own business. So my first entrepreneurial experience at that point already in my late 30s, used to having all the things that one has working for a big company thrust out into the world, trying to do everything myself, but loving it, loving the freedom, loving the chance, not making enough money, struggling, also figured out very quickly that trying to be an entrepreneur in France was a particular challenge. So that's when I moved to the UK and I set up a business, which was essentially to do what I'd done for Disney and IBM to provide the kind of conductor of the orchestra of talent that you need as a client, the architects, the market research, the economic stuff for other clients, for city clients, for developers, investors. And it turns out, I thought I was going to be helping American organizations coming to Europe. And I ended up in India. I ended up in the Middle East doing some incredible projects with with McKinsey, with the government of Abu Dhabi, big strategic kind of assignments where I would pull teams of experts together, 
and, and manage that process. That I did for six years. That bizarrely morphed into an executive search headhunting business when, again, early 2000s downturn. That went on for a few years, then ended up at, a, at the Urban Land Institute, ULI, which I'd been a member of for many, many years. And I was the first chief executive for ULI in Europe. That was an incredible opportunity because that was kind of a crow's nest perch to see everything going on in the industry, to build a phenomenal network. And it was entrepreneurial in the sense that we had, I think, 100 members. And over the course of three years, we grew it to 3,000. So it was building a business. There was no office. There were no no staff. Mm-hmm. We didn't have our, our value proposition. So help build ULI in the early days of the organization in Europe. Fast forward now, 2009, the Great Recession um, downturn then, I left ULI to go back into the executive search business. So I've had this overarching interest in talent and people and what motivates careers and got to see a lot of people making the transition from a corporate career to an entrepreneurial career. In many cases, mid-career changes in their life through no fault of their own. That gave me an interest in the entrepreneurial world. How do you help people doing what you're doing, frankly? How do you help people understand what their skill sets are and apply those in an entrepreneurial way? Did that for three or four years, terrible timing. Nobody was hiring in 2010. And then set up something which is the precursor to where we are today. So Mm -hmm. Urban Ovation is the son of something called Urban Innovation, the Urban Innovation Network, which a partner of mine and I set up focusing on universities, focusing on creating innovation districts around universities. Mm. Incredibly interesting journey, met with universities around the world. It was a struggle. What we quickly found out is to get a university to make a decision, to get a city to make a decision was a struggle, let alone pay you money. But in the process, we found out that companies like Audi and Siemens and large banks were starting to really be interested in the built environment, cities, They were major customers of those organizations. But unfortunately, I was on vapors as an entrepreneur trying to get this off the ground. And an organization called the ICSC came along. So my ULI history was valuable to them. And they they needed a new chief executive for Europe. So for four years, I ran, again, terrible timing. I didn't do my due diligence. I didn't appreciate all the challenges facing the retail world. I was not a retail expert. And there was a dynamic between Europe and North America, the way the North American center of ICSC saw the rest of the world. So I presided over tragically the the kind of wind down and demise of ICSC in Europe. But in the process, I discovered a really fascinating, in fact, passion for what retail can be, should be to cities as a catalyst for everything else. So I'm a born again retail I wouldn't say expert, but I'm really interested in the dynamics of that sector of the industry and what's going on and its potential going forward. That's cool. So I would like to dig a little bit back into into your story. So I have a lot of entrepreneurs who are either coming from large organization and thinking of jumping into their own world or into a smaller business and or the other ways, like people who have started businesses already. How was it for you jumping from a large corporation into your own business, specifically after Disney? How was it specifically the first time for you? Well, it's kind of hard to believe, but in those days, you know, there, there wasn't an internet. 
for example. There was very little ability to tap the kind of universe of gig support that an entrepreneur mm -hmm. today can reach. So in hindsight, it was a great opportunity, forced me to learn how to do all the stuff that I used to have assistants and secretaries to help with. So I learned, you know, Excel, PowerPoint, all of those good things. But all of the administration, I think the danger, even today, as I try and do it again, the danger is you can get lost in the weeds. The details of running the business can consume you and frankly did me at the time. And you need to be extremely careful to keep your focus on the vision and find the people that can support you whether they're outsourced, whether you end up hiring them as quickly as possible. So the mm -hmm. big idea, the strategy, the essence of what you're trying to do, you can focus your attention on. And that uh, I learned the hard way. You know, it took a few years and a lot of money to kind of get things going where I could eventually hire the people yeah. who could support me. You can spend a lot of your time executing whatever it is. In my case, it was advisory, this work in India and other places, and at the expense of marketing. So, you know, while you're in the middle of doing whatever it is you do, you're not filling the pipeline for the next things. So in the early days, unless you have a network that you can depend on to in parallel be filling that pipeline, the project will end and you'll find yourself scrambling, trying to pay the rent and feed the employees and everything else, mm. finding the next piece of business. So I think those two lessons uh Part of the reason why I then moved on to ULI and other things was that I didn't balance those two very well. What would be your advice for someone who is thinking about that? Or, I mean, we're in time of the pandemic in early 2021, where most probably a lot of people either have to leave their job or looking into something new. What would you recommend to people specifically for large organizations or people working in large organizations and thinking about that? I mentioned the headhunting stint and it was for an organization called corn ferry which is the the leader in the world in terms of executive search and and human capital and i saw a lot of people in the 2008 9 10 time frame who were in mm -hmm. that role and i had to be the one to break the news to them that they probably wouldn't find another job like the mm -hmm. one they had just left anytime in the near future and they had to really dig deep and think about a what got them up in the morning not the job and not the kind of corporate context, but what do they really love? Because mm. without the passion, without the passion, and then secondly, the, you know, whatever the expertise, you can distill down to your core strength, understand mm. that. And probably you can't do it yourself. You need some third party coach to help you truly understand what you excel at, what will drive you through the dark, long days as you get started. The first time around, I didn't do that enough. I just jumped in mm. and I didn't really think through what it is that I love doing. And I ended up getting stuck in all the stuff I didn't love doing. So Disney would invest a lot of money in its, its senior team and they would do coaching. Mm. So I had a dedicated 360, lasted about six months. They, my, my bosses, my peers, my, my subordinates, and I got a giant, it was Gallup. Some yeah. you know, yeah. very fancy I've consultant from Gallup. Got a report like this. We went to a very nice dinner with the consultant. And what sounded great, I mean, I thought, man, that's fantastic news. And then the last 20 pages were all the things that I was weak in. Yeah. And I looked at him and I said, so tell me, Marcus, what do I need to do to address those? And he said, understand that you'll never be good at those things, that mm. that's not you. Mm. And surround yourself with people that are good at those things. 
you can't be good at everything. And it was like a liberation. Ends. Yeah. I said, why the hell didn't somebody tell me that 20 years ago? <laughs> because I've always I was kind of trained to believe I needed to be good at everything. Yeah. 15 years later, ULI conference, this young consultant from Gallup is on the stage in front of 3000 people. He's the author of a book. I'll give him a plug. Marcus Buckingham. The one thing mm. is the title of the book. This was in the early 2000s. And the one thing is decide what you're good at and pursue that. Pursue that because that will allow you to enjoy and put up with all the nonsense and also decide what you're not good at. And don't waste time trying to be good at those things. I can't emphasize that in the same ways. It's it's really, really super, super important. I see this every day, even if you're not going into entrepreneurship, even if you work in a large corporation or if you're employed somewhere, you don't need to do everything. It's really finding out what you're good at and how you can limit the damage with building a team around you who are good in the other things and compliment well, there's a you. there's a thing called another thing disney loved to do and i've done many times since myers-briggs i don't know mm -hmm. if you've ever done a myers-briggs yes. assessment and one of the fun things when you do it as a group is to realize who's on that diagonally opposite side of yeah. the quadrant yeah because normally you hate those people they're so <laughs> opposite to you that you know you you're really challenged to have a productive conversation with them realize in fact that you have to You have to learn to see their strengths because those are exactly the people that can balance your weaknesses. And what was interesting in one of the exercises we did was that you tend to hire people that are like yourself, that you yeah. like going to the pub with and you like having a conversation with, and you end up not balancing your own weaknesses because those are those kinds of people. One of the metrics is introvert, extrovert. So if you happen to be an extreme extrovert, you're uncomfortable around extreme introverts. It, it was an interesting insight that in addition to understanding you need to delegate, you also need to reach out and appreciate people that are very different from yourself. Yeah, I fully agree. And it's, it's super important, specifically when you start a new team and new company to figure that out in the beginning. It's like, who are the people you want to have on board and where do you think it will work and it doesn't work? It's, yeah. it's super important. So. Moving a little bit towards innovation, what, what is innovation for you? When we branded the Urban Innovation Network, this was in the 2013. Even then, I got a lot of pushback from partners and colleagues that it's a cliche. Everybody is talking about innovation. And I, I thought, you know, it isn't just about, because in those days it was all about tech. At least that's what people thought. Yeah, yeah. And innovation is such a pervasive catalyst for change. And I think in a time of crisis, it's the, frankly, the only way to kind of manage your way through it. And it's about business models. It's about, yes, it might be about tech. It's about how you think about what you do every day. And so I do think that it is, it's certainly more than a cliche and it has to be a, a way of life. It has to be a way of thinking. And certainly when you look at the built environment, the, the, the real estate property world that I've grown up in. We haven't been terribly innovative. Yeah, they're innovative designs and buildings and ideas, but compared to other industries, and again, I started at IBM, and I, I, so I have an inner geek. I've been watching the tech world. I'm a avid reader of Wired magazine. I mean, by comparison, the property world is Neanderthal. It's a long-term play. You make a decision about a building, it's, it's a decision that's 20, 30, 40-year decision. You're trying to predict the future. You're making huge bets on future you can't possibly know. Mm. So you're, you're inherently risk averse. 
So it's tough to be terribly innovative when you're trying to raise tens of millions of euros. You're trying to figure out what the market's going to want 10 years from now. I think it drives people, particularly financial people, to be extremely cautious and understandably so. So yeah. it's, this, yeah. it's this bizarre dichotomy of a need for innovation in an industry that is inherently not innovative. So if we, if we double click on that, what do you think companies can do to get more innovative, specifically if they're in, in a long-term successful business, if you say it like this in the property world, what would you recommend companies like that? I've been around long enough now that I've watched this industry, which used to be dominated by cowboys, which you could kind of say are entrepreneurs and innovators. Hmm. It's now been completely dominated by MBAs, by bankers who are inherently cautious and less innovative. Yeah. And so I, I think it used to be a very entrepreneurial business. Now you have huge private equity funds and you know uh, sovereign funds and uh, institutional investors and asset managers calling the shots. Mm. And that constrains innovation in some ways. So the flip side of that is we've also, I've watched in kind of 30 plus years, an industry which used to be, you had to be a little bit of an expert in a lot of things, a generalist mm. in many ways. Mm. Now we are so siloed. So you're a retail architect or you're a logistics asset manager. Yeah. So it's not just you're a real estate person, you are specific to a certain sector, you're specific to a certain discipline, and those silos have become so rigid that in a world which you need the kind of cross-sector, cross-discipline, inspiration, serendipity to mm. innovate, mm. you don't get it because you spend all your time talking to yourself. You talk to other logistics people or other retail people, and if you're a retail real estate person, you're talking to other retail real estate people, not to retailers. Yeah. yeah. And even if you're talking to the retailer, you're talking to the real estate person within the retailer. So I think there's a need to knock down those silos, which is part of, we'll come to urban innovation. It's part of what we're trying to do is to say, look, the inspiration for innovation is going to come from listening and connecting to really Think broadly, think across sectors, disciplines, borders, all those things. We were doing a brainstorming session. We had some guy who had a beard down to here and, you know, crazy, the Imagineers, if you've heard of Disney Imagineering. Yes. We invited this Imagineer into this real estate brainstorming meeting. Mm. And he was a hung out with Nobel Prize winning kind of people. He said, look, there are conferences, there are brainstorming sessions going on right now in Silicon Valley and other places that are going to destroy your business model. You don't know who those people are. You don't know what they're doing because you're so focused on your own problems. Oh, yeah. It was prescient because he was talking about technologies like AI and other things that were in the laboratories in Silicon Valley, not even in the laboratories, that we as real estate guys couldn't even imagine. He was warning us that because we weren't thinking broadly, we didn't care, we didn't understand, we didn't want to know that these other conversations would someday destroy the things we were thinking about for the future. That's interesting. So let's look into urban innovation. Tell us about urban innovation. What is it? This started kind of early COVID days with a group of friends getting together to commiserate and just what the hell is going on and what does this mean for the future back in March, April of last year. 
And we started having a weekly call of about 10 people because we couldn't go to the industry conferences and other things. It was our only source of gossip, of insight and other things. And these conversations began to be a kind of weekly intellectual vacation amidst all the stress. People would then say, can I invite so-and-so beyond real estate? We had anthropologists, we had mayors, we had CEOs of retail businesses. And almost to a person, they would follow up saying, hey, that was a great conversation. Can I come back? So about middle of the summer, we started thinking, you know, maybe there's more to this. Particularly with not the demise, but the struggle the legacy organizations were having, the ICSCs, the MAPIC and MIPM, for those who know the property world, the big events and big conferences, those were just not happening. And they were all trying to shift online to continue their business model, but doing it with the kind of legacy constraints. They weren't being innovative or entrepreneurial in how they thought about the change that was happening in the market. So one thing that I heard and learned from all these calls was that the candor, intimacy, Chatham House conversation, the diversity of perspective was what made them special. And I think what people valued, how could we replicate scale that? So instead of being in the room with 600 people or at an event in Cannes with 6,000 people, how could we do lots and lots of things with 10, 20, 30 people where everybody had a chance to share what was on their mind and learn from each other? And then create a platform. So beyond simply connecting for the moment online, create a forum where 24-7, 365, people can exchange ideas, can share knowledge, reports, research, whatever. Create that platform, which we subsequently invested in the, the technology, the community management technology to enable that. And then start thinking about, okay, well, let's assume we could someday have several thousand people who have much more control over the specific group community within the community that they want to connect with, but benefit from the broader community. Hmm. How can we then say, look, there are a lot of people out there who through, as we talked about before, no fault of their own are looking for something else to do. So think Hollywood talent agency model. You know, Whether you're an asset manager or an architect or an investor, you need help. You're trying to be an entrepreneur. How do you create a website? How do you define your value proposition? Who's a good coach? Who can help me with all this? Create a platform to showcase that talent, to create opportunities, because the thing you need most is to extend your reach, your Rolodex. How do I find opportunities to showcase what you're capable of doing? So as opposed to, say, LinkedIn, where Jens can say, I walk on water. I'm the greatest thing in the world. And nobody knows whether that's true or not. Bet use some of the executive search and recruiting and other things to say, is Jens really who he says he is? Can he really deliver what the promise is? Mm -hmm. So then be able to say to the client, introduce Jens to an opportunity and say to that client, we know that Jens can do what you need to get done. So essentially, again, coming back to the talent agency model, flip the recruitment model on its head. Instead of representing the client who is hiring, engaging the talent, represent the talent itself and not just as an individual. So we parachute Jens into an assignment where somebody like Jens used to have a full-time job, but they're not hiring full-time people. So they need a Jens for three months or they need a team of experts. They need an asset manager, a creative person, a whatever. Put that team together and manage the team on the behalf 
of a government or other client. And then last but not least, the idea too, which I've touched on several times of saying, let's go beyond property. Let's get what I found at ULI and what I found at ICSC and other at the big industry events. It's a bunch of property people talking to each other. And we would struggle to attract the customer, the tenant, the retailer, the office occupier. Let's create a place where the technology providers, the people who are going to disrupt our business model five years from now or next year, let's create a place where we can have meaningful conversations about what's going on in the tech world, what's going on in the people who need place, physical place, and have those kinds of open conversations. So we're not siloed in the bricks and mortar world. We're connecting the virtual and the physical. So. If you think, okay, I'm a big retail company, that sounds interesting. How could they engage with you? What could they think about? We're soon to launch this platform I'm describing. First, you participate in what we've been calling reality checks and forums and a variety of different virtual ways to engage and get a taste of what this community I just described is all about. And then to say, look, it's a subscription-based model. So that you, in order to continue participating and access the knowledge and connect with the other people around the world, you need to pay a, what would be roughly equivalent to a, a magazine subscription to just be part of the community. If you then want to have access to and be a part of the agency, you want to find opportunities for what you're able to do and make money in the process, you need to be vetted. You pay more for that privilege because there's a much greater benefit. Mm -hmm. So you apply. Not everybody can just say, look, I want to join that expert pool. You have to prove that you're capable and you have to pay for the added effort on our part to do the vetting, to showcase what you're capable of doing. Then I could think that that might be as well interesting for, let's say, companies who have opportunities and might search for the right fit. And, and instead of just going the old way and they've heard about urban innovation, how could they approach that? Well, again, we're not just targeting individuals. And I think uh, you've been on some of these calls. We have, you know, large and small businesses who also have lost the opportunity that they once had at large industry events to showcase what they're capable of mm. and to, to access talent. Because a lot of what happens at big industry conferences, not so much in the big hall, but at the bar at midnight, yeah. is that you exchange business cards and that may or may not turn into an opportunity or a job in the future. So being able to make those connections and say, hey, this guy Jens on the call yesterday was really interesting. How do I connect with him? And steer those people who are looking for talent, who are looking for expertise to this pool of capabilities, make it a searchable, they, they can find the solution to their need and connect through the platform to get that expertise. Yeah. It's fair to say, because I have been uh, part of a couple of calls in the last year and this year already, it's already happening. I mean, that's Absolutely. nothing we, which, you, which you're orchestrating in the future. Even in the existing calls, let's say the prototyping calls you did over the last year, it's happening. There are things happening where people work with each other, building businesses together and so on. I think there's definitely something in it from a value perspective that's, that's interesting already today. Well, Jens, I have to credit you for part of it. You've opened my eyes to the fact that, no, seriously, I, I think the notion that our role is not as an organization to be the experts, but to be the, the connectors, mm -hmm. to be the platform which enables an efficient, cost-effective way for people to connect with opportunity, 
whether they're a small business or whether they're an individual, and simply provide that that neutral platform, that enabling platform that has the tools and has the the activities. Again, uh, you weren't there. I think you you patched in virtually, but after several of our virtual yeah. connections, we had a physical meeting with about a dozen people who had been on a call. I thought they were all old friends and they'd known each other a long time. And I was astonished when some of them walked in the room that they would say, oh, you're taller or you look older <laughs> or they had never met before. Yeah. But yeah. after a couple of calls, they had developed a relationship and an understanding of each other. And I then found out that people were, you know, would call me and say, hey, can you give me so-and-so's email address or phone number? Because I'd like, I think I have an opportunity they could help me with. So I think providing a more structured way that that activity can occur compared to the cost of going, spending three days in some wonderful place and a plane ticket and a hotel and and having, you know, hundreds or thousands of people, 95% of whom are irrelevant to you, mm-hmm. curate the mix of people so that the, the 20 or 30 people are highly relevant to each other as buyers or sellers of whatever service, expertise, product, create that curated environment that's managed where people can do business together. One thing we discussed, the different themes you have been thinking about. Part of the the beauty of the platform technology we've invested in is that uh, it allows, as I touched on, these sub-communities, which we're calling forums. So for example, I don't know if you've been on one of the the Future Places forum, which is essentially the creatives. So it started with a, a couple of architects, and they've now invited a whole range of different perspectives into this smaller group of roughly 50 people. So we have a capital markets forum. We have a urban technology forum. In fact, Tuesday, we have a climate change forum. And so we get somebody to champion the discussions to kind of curate the mix of people. We then leverage their network. So the guy who's hosting the climate change discussion is a former EU, uh, you know, he's been very involved in sustainability and climate change initiatives. He's got a phenomenal network of experts in the built environment related mm-hmm. to climate change. So we have a great group of people that will get a taste of this unique exchange of ideas. And we see that potentially growing to literally dozens and dozens of these kinds of forums, which are issue or sector focused, but at the same time, to avoid the idea of a silo, being able to do joint events, to share between the forums, to have an exchange on the broader platform of what are the the most interesting outcomes, the most interesting nuggets of inspiration that have come out of the climate change discussion that are relevant to everybody else. It's to be both broad and deep at the same time across the spectrum of different issues facing the industry. I can highly recommend anyone who is listening to it, reaching out to Bill or myself, I'm happy to as well bridge the connection to the urban innovation network and ways of thinking. Slowly getting towards an end, I have a couple of standard questions, which I'm always asking. So if you would have the chance to work with a project that's experienced, that's touched by every human being on earth, what project would it be and why would you choose to work with that project? Part of what I'm excited about through all the incredible challenges we face that have been brought to the fore thanks to the current pandemic is that I think we are truly at a tipping point and that the tipping point relates to everything I'm interested in, the the notion of the built environment and what is place. How do we use place? And you see it affecting not just retail. Everybody sees Mm -hmm. and can touch e-commerce and what that's done, but everything. 
Where do we work? How do we live? So I think this is a moment of great innovation. It will foster lots and lots of entrepreneurs. So I think creating a place, creating something that can help cities, that can help individuals and companies figure out how instead of being destroyed by this disruption, how do we be part of the solution? How do we create a new and better future despite all the incredible challenges we face? I tend to be an optimist. I think there'll be a lot of pain, a lot of people, a lot of businesses that go under, and a lot of cities that struggle to find their future. Being a part of helping that sharing, again, this is a bit of a plug for urban innovation. I think that's that's kind of our mission statement. But that, after all these years of doing all this crazy stuff I described earlier, that's the opportunity of a lifetime mm-hmm. and, and to help enable that exchange. Love it. So looking forward, where will you be in a year from now? And you can take it either way or both, like personal and or business-wise. Time is flying. I'm depressed when I look back a year at all the dreams I had a year ago of where I thought I'd be now. So I'm trying to be a little bit balanced in not being overly ambitious. I know you have ambitious goals. I have equally, maybe not equally, but very ambitious goals for building the Urban Ovation platform. I would like to see us as an entity, as an organization, having a lot of fun. And first and foremost, nice to make money. I mean, we all have to eat, but I think making it an enjoyable experience for not just myself and trying to build this thing, but for everybody who participates in it. So A, I'd like to be that. I'd like to be having some fun, working hard, but enjoying it every step of the way. And oh, by the way, incidentally, making money in the process. So I do think there's a business opportunity in all this. But I think more importantly, it's it's a chance to indulge the passion I described early in the conversation. Yeah. How do you keep yourself up to date? What are the different sources of information you, you gather and you build your opinions on? It's interesting you say that because I think we're all just absolutely overwhelmed. I can't even get through my inbox every day by all of the newsletters and other stuff that's out there. I'm trying to convince myself, I hope I'm not delusional, that part of the value of the calls we've been having is you get the real scoop. And it's it's a much more fun way than reading a lengthy report or hearing some canned marketing pitch from a, a, one of the information sources. So that's one source. I do like to kind of scan the podcasts, the kinds of things you do. And I appreciate the recommendations you and others have made about you know who I should be listening to. Yeah. So I think there's a whole emerging way to consume information and knowledge that isn't the traditional, I mean, I still love Wired Magazine. I read that every month, but I do think that this kind of conversation and the small groups, I learn more from those than I do from, you know, the FT or from the kind of conventional sources that I've consumed most of my career. How can people find you? How can people reach out to you? Well, within a couple of weeks, we will be in soft launch mode and they'll be able to see if they type in urban-ovation.com, they'll be able to get a feel for all the stuff we just talked about and certainly invite them to join the conversation. There's a teaser-free month where you can join a few of the calls and get a better feel for what the value proposition is. And then if you're interested in continuing, then it's a, a, a nominal subscription to do so. Yeah. Now we'll put the link as well into the show notes so people can find it. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure having you on the show, Bill, and hope to see the urban innovation coming to life and be part of that myself, of course, as well. Thank you very well, much. Well, Jens, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.
Hey, this is Jens again. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. If you like what you have listened to, please subscribe to the podcast and share the episodes with your friends and people you think might like it too. If you want to know more about what I'm up to, please follow me on social media or look me up at jensheitland.com. Thank you very much and see you in the next episode.